Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting December 24th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll hear from Scientific American editor Michael Battaglia on the 40th anniversary of Apollo 8's historic flight to the moon. And journalist Emily Anthes talks about her new book, The Instant Egghead Guide to the Mind. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Michael Battaglia. He put together the in-depth report for our website about the Apollo 8 mission, which orbited the moon Christmas Eve 40 years ago. We spoke in the library at Scientific American. A lot of things that people still probably don't know about Apollo 8, which was, at the time, the biggest deal there had ever been in, in spaceflight. True. Today, people remember Apollo 11, but Apollo 8 was was the one that really broke ground because it was it was the first mission carrying human beings outside the earth's orbit. Correct. Yeah, that that was the, the that was truly the great leap for mankind, I think. Um I mean I don't want to denigrate the landing and then the incredible accomplishment there, but I think uh Apollo 8 was really paved the way. It uh brought them to within 69 miles of the uh, landing and uh tested so many things. There were so many firsts on that mission. First time uh, humans had ever rode above the Saturn V booster, which had only been tested a few times and was the most powerful rocket ever built. They didn't need the Saturn V if they were just doing orbit, Earth orbit. Even the, the other uh, Apollo crews had not been on a Saturn V. Uh, correct. They, uh, when Apollo 7 was the only other time Apollo had flown in space with um, people, um, it was on a Saturn 1B, which is a smaller version. And it, w- it would test it the third stage, but not the other stage, which had the massive 7.5 million pound thrust engines and all that. That was needed to put the whole assembly in, in orbit and then on to the moon. So, now I didn't remember that. Apollo 7 was the first Apollo mission that actually carried people? Correct. There were some unmanned Apollo flights, uh, but the first time that they actually launched an Apollo into space with people to test the command and service modules was Apollo 7. Wow. So on the second mission, they're going to the moon. That's it. Yes. It's really, it was really quite uh, gutsy. And uh, we really, usually think of NASA now as a somewhat risk-averse agency. But here we see, uh, and not that it wasn't planned, but it was planned so quickly and innovatively that it's real testimonial to uh, what a bureaucracy could do, <laughs> you, you could say. And... Uh, and this was because they were in a rush to get somebody on the moon before the decade was out to fulfill the Kennedy promise? Correct. And also the CIA had given them uh, intelligence saying that the Russians were planning a lunar mission before the end of 68. Um, there was a, a one of the Enron rocket, which was their super moon rocket, was already on the pad, though it was probably a mock-up from what I've heard. And uh, they had already launched twice the Zond spacecraft, which... Uh, circled the moon and came back, took some great pictures, actually. <laughs> Those were unmanned, obviously. Yeah. yeah. So do you, was that CIA intelligence faulty, or did the Russians back off? I think uh, it could be a combination of both. You know, they might have heard what Russians thought they were going to do, but the Russians did back off, because I think they had some problems with the Zond that they didn't. Of course, everything's so secretive that they thought maybe um, humans couldn't survive. And uh, with like, reentry, they always seem to have problems with that. Um, and the the leadership, I thought they didn't want such an embarrassment. So, One of the things in the package that is really fascinating is that according to uh, polling data, 
it appears that the public's enthusiasm for manned spaceflight and for the whole moon effort is really already waning by the time Apollo 11 actually puts people on the moon. Apollo 8, though, is still at the height of the of the moon mania. Seems to be the case. Uh, um, it, it's sort of counterintuitive, but uh, somehow that mission caught people's imagination. I think it, it could possibly be, um, maybe because the timing was just so spectacularly perfect, there they were, Christmas Eve, 1968, in orbit around the moon, reading Genesis and, and uh, giving other greetings to a the the planet and it was such a terrible year politically right. that maybe that was just what the doctor ordered. Um, there is that one famous uh, line that well, it was not a line. It was actually a telegram sent to uh, Frank Borman, and and it said, um, "Thank you, Apollo Eight, for saving 1968." He said that was the favorite telegram he had ever gotten, and and it was a uh, probably a good remedy for what ailed them at the time. And then that that combined with uh, the idea that maybe in, intuitively people realized that we had won the space race at that point. Once we orbited the moon, it was pretty much in the bag. And, and maybe that's where interest started waning because there could have been a certain degree of being anticlimactic. So that seems hard to believe now. But I don't think it was really immediately apparent when Apollo 11 landed because there was a lot of enthusiasm. But as you can see, once Apollo 11 had gotten to the moon, the interest just completely died out and that was one of the big things about apollo 13 no one was interested until they were in trouble right and lovell who was the uh commander of apollo 13 mm -hmm. is also on board apollo 8 yes and then sort of an interesting thing on that is that uh lovell on apollo 8 had made a bit of a boo-boo on the way back he had erased the navigational data in the ship's minuscule computer <laughs> minuscule by our standards but very important at the time what was it about a sixty-four kilobyte computer? Something like right? that, you know, microwave oven. I'm not sure, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and it was a uh, it wasn't much of a multitasker, but uh, it did do the job. But uh, Lovell had um, inadvertently erased some of the data, and uh, they lost their positional coordinates, and they were coming in for reentry, which is like one of the most precise things they had to do. And it and at twenty-five thousand miles per hour, there's little room for error. You know, they had like a one-mile envelope to catch the atmosphere just right. And uh, he had to use visual coordinates, good old-fashioned constellations, and looking out the window to uh, reestablish position. Ironically enough, he'd be doing that again on Apollo 13 when the crippled craft needed to be positioned to get back to Earth. Right. There's the scene in the movie Apollo 13 where you see them navigating by the seat of their pants by looking out the window and yes. keeping things lined up in the frame of the window. And uh, he's talking about that point they were in the lunar module which apollo 8 didn't have with them at the time but in apollo 13 they had the lunar module and steering that with the apollo service and command modules on uh, hooked to it would uh, they said was like trying to maneuver with an elephant on your back yeah. <laughs> so but anyway, that was sort of like a strangely enough a dress rehearsal for what he'd have to go through to save their lives on apollo 13 and he's the only person to have gone out of earth's orbit twice to go all the way to the moon but he never actually left the craft. To, they never landed on the moon, either of those missions. Yeah, I believe so. I mean, other astronauts had gone to the moon more than once, but at least one time I think they'd landed, like Eugene Cernan, right. for instance. Um, I think, um, but I think Lovell, yeah, was the only one that really was, had a horrible, it was a horrible tease. <laughs> he yeah. was denied twice. And, uh, 
he came very close. But then again, he, he you could say he was on two of the most exciting missions NASA ever had because one was sort of this incredibly innovative mission that they put together and uh, pretty much saved the goal of getting there by 1969. Um, the other mission was what I call NASA's only unplanned mission. <laughs> right, right. And that's the you know, great testimony of innovation, how they got those as astronauts home. Yeah. We have three pieces or four pieces to this section. There's a really terrific slideshow, but there's also an article by Andrew Chaikin, really well-known mm-hmm. space writer, and, and he interviewed these guys at the time. Yes. And he talks about that. That's one of the reasons I wanted him to uh, write for us, because uh, he, he has a, um, a great perspective, and most of the astronauts, uh, I think all of them, you know, are uh, uh, trust trust his uh, observations they all seem to think he's done a very good job of uh, of um, writing a history of, of the moon program so I thought it'd be great to get him and he wrote us a nice essay on uh, their impressions going to the moon in orbit and coming back and their impressions that are based on his interviews with the astronauts and uh, and other little asides that only he seems to know about just by being there and talking to people for endless hours yeah, <laughs> over the years cool. in a way like Apollo 8's uh, import was uh, actually even more so when they got back. Suddenly there were ticker tape parades. People would realize what had happened. And once they saw grainy television photos while they were out there, but once the, the uh, film, the film was developed from their uh, snapshots, <laughs> they uh, suddenly realized they had this incredible view of the planet and and people are, i mean to me i always thought of earth as a planet but a lot of people didn't <laughs> i don't think and this suddenly drove the point home in this you know war-torn riots assassinations pollution and they look back and they see this beautiful blue island out there in the void and then realize that it's a self-portrait and uh it was a uh, moving for the whole world and that's a uh, might have been the greatest accomplishment. As I said, they went to visit the moon. I'm not sure which astronaut said it could have been Anders. They went to visit the moon and they ended up discovering Earth. <laughs> so that, that, that photo could be one of the most iconic in 20th century, maybe more so. And we have an article by John Matson about pretty much the future of, of, well, the near future of manned spaceflight. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's, this big controversy about whether uh, NASA Administrator Griffin is trying to stonewall the Obama transition team. I mean, yeah. NASA and government, I mean, NASA's part of government, but you know what I mean? NASA right. and, and the, the power structure are really not getting along right now. No, no. I mean, I suspect, I, I don't know the, all the details. Um, there's a lot of scuttlebutt about this. Like, uh, I think the Orlando Sentinel did, did yeah. a story on it, and there were, weren't too many uh, sources that they had disclosed. And, and some of this had happened at a party. But, yeah, the, um, Griffin seems to be stonewalling the um, Obama transition team, being very protective of the Constellation program that is the next um, technology that will get us back to the moon and onward to Mars and yeah, in some scenarios. Um, I think there's a lot of frustration at NASA because they're seeing it maybe as a, an unfunded mandate, or I think there's there's uncertainty about what Obama will be doing. He's got to make a decision very quickly on the fate of the shuttle program. And I believe when he was campaigning, he said that um, he would just delay the 
the uh, Constellation program for five years mm -hmm. um, to, for other programs. And uh, this, I think, sent shockwaves through NASA because it's really hard to, I, I think, I, in NASA, to give NASA's point of view maybe, it's really hard to, like, uh, start a, a massive program and then have it sort of pulled away from you and also not to know what to do with your old program because once we once we get rid of the shuttle, we will not have any way of getting into space. Probably better NASA does end it the way they want to in, in an orderly manner, get the Hubble fixed, which I think is the, the main priority. When you're talking about NASA, we're talking a lot about manned space, but we should be talking, too, about science. And right. I mean, in some ways, NASA has never been more successful. Yes. It's a, it's their crown jewel. The rovers are still running around on Mars. Uh, Cassini's um, showing us things we had never dreamt of. Um, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, yeah, mapping the planet. I mean, it, it go on, but we have two spacecraft about to leave the heliopause. You know, we launched in 1977. We're still getting a lot of bang for our yeah, buck there. The Voyagers. So, I mean, no, NASA has nothing to be ashamed of there. They, they should be very proud. I mean, right. Our, but the big manned missions yeah. are, are just not there right now. And, and basically, yeah, Apollo 8 was the, High point. So you're thinking that was 1968. I mean, there was Skylab. There was the 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 uh, you know the space station got some attention, but I, I don't think it'll ever has ever reached that point, which is what makes this event anniversary so special. I think, and I mean that's sort of bittersweet because I'd like to think there'd be another high point in the future. Yeah, and in my lifetime, I'm a little selfish about it because I'd love to do what I did back in 1968. Uh, just be awed by something like that. To find the Apollo 8 in-depth report, just go to Siam.com. You'll find a link on the homepage during Christmas week, and it'll be archived after that. In the spirit of the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, a series of books is coming out, the Instant Egghead books, about various scientific subjects, all of which consist of lots of short pieces That'll wind up giving you a good foundation in that subject. Emily Anthes is the author of the first book in the series, The Instant Egghead Guide to the Mind, which was officially released this week. We spoke in the Siam Library. Instant Egghead Guide to the Mind. And then we have the little Poindexter character on the cover. <laughs> Explain big ideas fast. So what are, what are some of the big ideas in this book? A lot of big ideas, you know, from the basics of how the various parts of the brain work individually to what happens when they come together. I mean, we go all the way from how does a neuron work and what is a neuron to what is consciousness, which is probably one of the biggest ideas that's out there. And we don't always come to answers. You know, scientists are still struggling to learn what consciousness is, but we at least try to talk about, you know, how do you tackle a problem like what consciousness is? I mean, that's a Big, bigger problem right now than what is consciousness is how do we even go about studying that? And um, the more concrete level, we look at things like language and where did language come from and, you know, what are some of the basic properties of language to things like how can, how can people improve their brain power or make the most of their brain? You know, things like diet and exercise aren't just things that are good for the body, they're also good for the brain. And so we talk about some of those ideas as well. So we, we actually have some evidence now that diet and exercise really do help the brain function? Yeah, uh, for sure. And, um, you know, I'm not sure that people want more reasons to be shamed into exercising and eating well, but 
there have been a lot of studies, particularly with, with senior folks that those who exercise several times a week, even things as simple as, you know, taking a half hour walk around the neighborhood, it doesn't have to be running a marathon, can stave off cognitive decline and keep the brain functioning well. Um, there are a couple different theories for why this might be. One is, pretty simple, which is just that exercise increases blood flow to the whole body and also blood flow to the brain, which means the brain is getting more nutrients and more oxygen. Um, There's some other sort of more technical theories in there, but, um, you know, there are plenty of reasons that people wanting to keep their minds young as well as their bodies should exercise and eat right. The brain is a really weird thing. You know, I keep thinking of the, the Jerry Seinfeld line about the motorcycle helmet law, which was something to the effect that, so you have to make a law for people to protect the thing that they're not smart enough to be protecting that makes them not smart enough to protect it in the first place. Right. It's a very strange organ, this brain thing. Yeah, I don't, I'm a big Seinfeld fan. I don't remember that line, but I mean, the brain's very delicate and you don't want to damage it, but scientists are also learning that it's also a lot more resilient than we ever thought. You know, there's been a lot of talk in the last decade about neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. And, you know, we used to think that we were born with a fixed number of neurons. And when you do drugs or drink or fall off your motorcycle and they die, that's it. That's when all you, you ever get. Gary Busey, you're, uh, exactly. <laughs> but, irreparably you know, scientists are now learning that actually the brain has an amazing ability to repair itself and to grow throughout adulthood. And, um, you know, it's it's definitely you don't want to damage it if you don't have to, but it's it's far more resilient than than we ever thought it was. You mentioned you know you didn't have room to get into uh, a lot of detail in some of these subjects, but that that's by design. I mean, this book is uh, I hope this isn't uh, pejorative, but it's like the perfect bathroom book it in is. many ways. Yes, um, it is by design. You know, we wanted to give people a little taste of everything. So there are actually a hundred different topics. And I doubt that, you know, every reader is going to be fascinated by every single one of them. But the idea is to put a little something in there for everyone. And actually, at the end of the book, um, I've listed a bunch of suggestions for further reading, brain books that I've loved reading uh, that are fascinating. If readers get interested in one topic or another where they can sort of pursue it in more depth, this is sort of This book is designed to be an introduction and give people an idea of what sort of topics about the mind they might be interested in and and want to read about further. An amuse-bouche for your brain. Exactly. So, yeah, if it's a a subject you're not that interested in, it'll be over in another page. And if it's a subject you are interested in, you can find out where to learn more about it at the back of the book. So when you were writing this book, what did you learn that kind of blew you away? Well, one of my favorite things that I learned about, and this is a little bit esoteric, but something that's really stuck with me is the idea of um, what's called thermal taste, which is the idea that scientists have um, now uncovered, I think it was 2000, that they've uncovered the first evidence of this, that, you know, the tongue is covered with taste buds that help you detect sweet, sour, bitter, etc. But also that changes in temperature on the tongue are enough by themselves to produce the sensation of taste. And, um, you know, researchers discovered this. They were trying to look into how the tongue detects temperature. And they, you know, grad student was holding an ice cube to his tongue. And 
noticed that actually he tasted salty and it was just a regular ice cube. It shouldn't have tasted salty. So they ended up doing all these experiments and found out this molecular mechanism, which I don't go into too much detail, but if you change the temperature of the tongue, it can, if you decrease it, it can produce a salty taste. If you warm the tongue, it can produce a sweet taste, um, which is something that I don't know if you've ever sat there and let a bowl of ice cream melt, but the melted ice cream actually will taste somewhat sweeter than the frozen ice cream. I thought that was because the, the oils had a chance to kind of be more volatile in your mouth and you were smelling more, but that's not true? Yeah, I mean, my first instinct would be, oh, it's because the cold ice cream numbs the tongue so you can't taste as well. But mm-hmm. they're actually, they're channels in your taste receptors that temperature influences how widely they open oh. or not. So it's a molecular mechanism. And if, you know, if they open more widely, something tastes sweeter. And it's, it's based on temperature and not wow. on other things. I know it's something that has been one of the applications that's been mentioned is in, you know, things like wine tasting and certain foods where the temperature is, is controlled. It sort of helps explain why you might want to let some things come to a certain temperature before you eat them. That's really interesting. I'd never heard of that before. Anything else that uh, you ran into while you were working on it that, that uh, was completely unexpected? Well, I've always been really interested in language, and obviously that's sort of a huge um area of research. And something that I find really interesting is that researchers have been discovering over the last few years, perhaps longer, what a huge role gestures play in language and that they're not just these ancillary parts of language or unnecessary parts where you're gesturing because you need something to do with your hands. Gesturing actually helps the speaker think better, helps people understand better. They've done experiments now with math students who learn to gesture along with problem solving. And when they're allowed to gesture, they do better in math class. I, and should, so, I should point out you're gesturing right now. I am, and I'm trying to stop, but <laughs> it's it's hard. It's almost impossible to, to not use your – I'm doing it as well – to not use your hands when you talk. You right. Know? And, and uh, clearly that's built into language, although somebody who's listening to this will still get the content, but they might miss some of the nuances of what we're talking about because they're not getting our facial expressions. Right. They're not being, they're not able to see our lips move. They're not seeing our hand gesticulations. Right. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And um, obviously a big question has been how has language evolved? And some research now, researchers now think that it actually started as gesture and certain gestures evolved into language. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on about gesture and the importance of gesture. Hmm. So in addition to people spend a lot of time in the, in the bathroom, who's, uh, who would really get, uh, get something out of this book? Who's this book written for really? Well, it sounds like a cliche to say it, but we really hope the book's for everyone. Um, it's intentionally written to be interesting and stimulating, but it's not gonna beat you over the head with you know, tons of scientific names and facts and details. And obviously, we hope you come away with some facts, but you don't need to be a scientist to read this. You don't need to have a scientist, uh, science degree to read this book. Um, we really hope it's for a general audience. We tried to make it accessible and even funny in some places. Science can be funny. Um, use a lot of metaphors to help people sort of visualize some of the complicated ideas we talk about. And, you know, with a hundred different topics, we, feel pretty confident that you can find at least one that's going to interest you. I'm going to open this book completely at random. 
and let's see what we find. All right. Okay. An article on sleep that knits the raveled sleeve of care. No, that's not in here. Um, so uh, each each article looks to be about 250 words, and then we have at the end of each article something called cocktail party tidbits, little little bullet points, and I'll just read one. Uh, this is, again, connected to the article on sleep, and it says, we first start yawning in utero. And then, bad news, fetus's life only gets more exhausting. Ain't that the truth? So, that's really fascinating. What are fetuses yawning over? It's not clear. And, you know, to answer that, we'd probably have to have a better sense of what purpose yawning serves, which is actually something we're not really sure about. Um, You know, yawning, as you probably have noticed, is a social phenomenon. Someone yawns, someone else yawns. Um, Some researchers theorize that it Yawning is mainly serves a social purpose. Um, there was some research lately that indicated dogs, that, right? well, yes, that, that even dogs uh-huh. can detect yawning. Um, also that yawning maybe cools the brain. Huh. Um, and, you know, by changing blood flow and stretching the back of the neck, it can cool the brain and, you know, if maybe boost thinking. There's sort of a lot of speculation out there about what purpose yawning serves in adults and what purpose it serves in a fetus, I can't even begin to wow. speculate. Maybe practicing. Practicing, yeah. Just yeah, get making sure going through the Everything checklist works right. before yeah. launch. Exactly. So how many people listening have just been yawning as we've been talking about yawning? Because yawning is so suggestive. You don't even have to see somebody yawn. You I mean I've I started to feel the urge to yawn just talking about it. And actually, similarly, itching is something that's also suggestive. And I was reading about itching, and it's hard to read about itching without starting to itch. And then you scratch, and um, it's another sort of, it seems like the brain comes first, and then the body sensation follows. Yeah, we are constantly being fooled by our, our little old convoluted brains. Yeah. Well, the book again, The Instant Egghead Guide to the Mind by Emily Anthes. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, sugary foods don't really make kids any more hyper. Story two, the producers of the new version of The Day the Earth Stood Still have beamed the entire movie in the direction of Alpha Centauri for possible alien entertainment. Story three, the state with the healthiest population is Louisiana. And story four, you could soon be driving on tires partially made from soybeans. We'll be back with the answer, but first I want to tell you, the Metropolitan Opera's production of Dr. Atomic, the story of Robert Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project, airs nationwide on Monday, December 29th. We're planning to have some related content on next week's podcast, and your time is now up. Story four is true. Researchers are looking at soy flour as a filler for tires and other rubber products. Most such fillers are petroleum-based particles called carbon black, but recent research in the Journal of Applied Polymer Science shows that soy flour could also fit the bill. By the way, back in 1941, Henry Ford developed a car whose panels used soybean meal as a component, but the car never went into production. Too bad I might still be driving my vintage Ford tofu. Story one is true. Slipping kids some sugar 
does not seem to really lead to hyperactivity. That's according to research in the British Medical Journal. In fact, one study found that parents who were falsely told that their kids had had sugar then saw them as being more hyperactive. For more, check out the December 22nd episode of our 60-Second Psych podcast. And story two is true. The day the Earth stood still was beamed into space through the Deep Space Communications Network at Cape Canaveral. It'll arrive at Alpha Centauri in 2012. Expect a reply in 2016 that says, send the original. And, of course, more Chuck Berry. All of which means that story three about Louisiana being the healthiest state is totally bogus. Because that honor goes to Vermont, according to a ranking done by the American Public Health Foundation, the Partnership for Prevention, and the United Health Foundation. Louisiana came in last. Hawaii, New Hampshire, Minnesota, Utah, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Idaho, and Maine were the other states with the healthiest people. The other suffering states... Mississippi, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Florida, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Nevada, and Georgia. Well, that's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Check out Siam.com for the in-depth report on Apollo 8 and another in-depth report on science at the movies. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.